0: Ladies and
1: gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Terrence Malagone. This week we have two interesting conversations from two very interesting broadcasters. First up is Ron McLean, the host of Hockey Night in Canada and Rogers Hometown Hockey. He is one of the most well-known sports broadcasters in Canada. I think many of you know him who live in the United States. If you don't, you'll find the interview really, really interesting. He is really one of the iconic voices in Canadian sports television. And obviously, for full disclosure, we both work for the same company up in Canada, and that is Rogers. Following Ron McLean is Jason Bonetti, the voice of the Chicago White Sox, as well as a rising ESPN broadcaster. You've heard Jason on the StatCast broadcast, and we get into a really interesting discussion about how he's navigating all the different sports that he calls. He made the jump from local to national broadcaster, which is always a very interesting jump. And he also has cerebral palsy and he has done a lot to sort of eradicate stereotypes when it comes to disability awareness. So a really interesting guy in sports broadcasting. So Ron McClain, first up then Jason Benetti, both coming up on the sports media podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Ron McLean is the host of Hockey Night in Canada and Roger's Hometown Hockey. He is one of the most well-known sports broadcasters in Canada. The 2019 NHL playoffs are about to begin, so you will see Ron McLean everywhere, and I will do the disclosure once again here. Ron McLean and I both work for the same place in Canada, and that is Roger's. And Ron McLean, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast.
0: It's nice to be Richard. Real pleasure.
1: Ron, the uh, the Toronto Star called the Hockey Night in Canada hosting gig the highest profile position in Canadian sports broadcasting. What's your reaction to that proclamation?
0: Well, we love the game, right? It's uh, certainly in our country, unlike in the United States, where we have uh, a choice, a little more choice. It's either baseball is our pastime or the NFL or on and on. Uh, we tend to uh, focus with hockey as our uh, the one that shows us the way. The art that tells us how to live our lives, and uh, it's a it's a crazy little obsession uh, and a good one. But once you're in the anchor chair, uh, I think you you're really aware uh, of your hockey roots, which keeps you humble and keeps you thinking team and thinking of the other. So it's pretty easy not to get uh, consumed by it or overwhelmed by the idea.
1: The um, I know you've been doing this a long time, and we'll sort of get into your two runs uh, for hockey night. But does the um, does that position ever feel overwhelming? That you're sort of the You're the gatekeeper for something that is so important to a country that so many people care about? I I,
0: I think you know, Richard, if you looked at my wall of books in my little office, which is a bedroom converted at my home in Oakville, Ontario, uh, it's kind of like Shakespeare says, these are the the books to to beguile your sorrow. So (laughs) all, all the wisdom writers especially... Uh, you rely heavily on, uh, I'll call it appropriation, but I really, th- I'm a thief, right? I steal all these ideas of how to do ethics or get that right, because you do understand that when you're on television, uh, especially at Olympics, it's funny, uh, i obviously be known in my work for being with Hockey Night in Canada, but I've found the Olympic experience one where I really sense how we wrap ourselves in the flag and in ethics and in uh, agendas and that's pressure. I, I come out of 16 days of the Olympics absolutely wiped. Uh, as an example, I felt like in uh, Rio de Janeiro, I got something wrong. We were discussing Jeannie Bouchard, a Canadian tennis player, and one of my colleagues uh, referred to her, you know, focus being more on her commercials or advertising and less on the game and wow did we get whacked hmm. and I realized you know you just have to have your radar up you have to be uh, aware of uh, what could be uh, sexism uh, or any of those uh, you know the moral compass of today's generation's ears especially is unbelievable and it's good <laughs> you know we've we've come a long way and uh, but it really holds you accountable and I find it more so on the Olympic platform than I do on the hockey platform but you no know, I, I Look, you and I are in the same gig. Uh, there's this sort of Damocles hanging over your head your entire life. You, people kid when we do what we do that you've never worked a day in your life, but the fact of the matter is you've never had a minute off because you're forever thinking about how to get it right, uh, how to say the same thing over and over again, big game tonight, and how not to offend.
1: Ron, um, one of the things that I admire about you, and I think this trait exists in people like Ernie Johnson in the States or James Brown, is as a sports host, I, I consider you pretty ego free. Your hosting a lot of times shines the or not a lot of times, almost all the time, shines the spotlight on your analysts. The analysts are the star and you're sort of you're you're piloting us around those analysts. What for you is the most important trait a sports television host can have and why?
0: Well, for sure, that would be it. To let your guest be the star, I was taught that by a gentleman named Wayne Heinrich, who went by the radio pseudonym Wayne Barry, but he came into my life when I was about 20 at CKRD in Red Deer, Alberta. And I remember there was a a caller phoned into the radio station to pick up a pair of hockey tickets And I was the glib DJ host with the most and having a lot of fun and firing off cliches and one-liners and quips. And the next day, this boss, Wayne, got a hold of me and he said, you know, Ron, that guy was good enough to listen to CKRD, good enough to pick up the phone and phone you, good enough to want to go attend the local hockey team's games. You should have made him shine. You know, what you did wasn't necessarily bad but you had an opportunity to make the guest uh, look great, and you, to, by extension, looked great. And that, that I really believe, is... Uh, I mean, it, it gets tricky again, because if I'm interviewing Grapes, Don Cherry, uh, obviously, I know where Don's uh, sensibilities lie, what his interests are, and I want him to have that path. I want him to, to go in excited like you and I as a broadcasters or writers, if, if we don't feel the enthusiasm in our work, uh, the reader's not going to or the listener's not going to. So I do want to help you know, facilitate. I was a referee in hockey for 23 years. It uh, seems like every little walk that I've been a part of has, has had that element of service to it, and I really enjoy it. However, uh, you will also have a responsibility as a journalist once in a while to uh, step up. And I find it's been very hard on the commissioner of the NHL, Gary Bettman, to endure my, you know, trying to represent the other side of the equation. So labor management, I usually am the player's voice uh, when I'm interviewing Gary. And it's, you know, it comes uh, with a bit of a black heart. The intention to uh, to expose truth, uh, to get at the truth, uh, doesn't feel quite as uh, red-hearted as being the kind... Uh, enabler.
1: Where is the uh, relationship right now with Gary Bettman between you two, at least professionally? Oh,
0: I think, you know, probably tarnished for life in a sense uh, that you know, I'm sure Gary's skeptical each time he's, uh, you know, near me. But I I also think, Richard, that the the primary fight, which was uh, was the salary cap, you know, that horse has left the barn. So the, the thing that we argued the most about, which was my contention that a player's market value should dictate that the player should be paid whatever the next best offer for their services would be. That would be the closest thing to market value. Mm. That's gone with a salary cap. So the, the days of our, our, our feud where I would provide all kinds of evidence about, you know, how, how it should work and how it could work uh, in another system. I think that that was the fight that he was really aiming to win and he did in 2005.
1: If people on the state uh know you ron um those at least who are not on uh border cities who could who who, you know who can watch you obviously because they get canadian television they're familiar that you and don cherry have had this very very long partnership when it comes to coaches corner how close are you with don away from the camera does that relationship extend beyond what you do on tv
0: Yeah, really close. Uh, Don was uh, a godsend in my early career. So I started with Hockey Night in Canada in the mid 1980s. I was 26 years old when I did my first telecast and Don was 52. Hmm. And now I'm going to be turning 59 and he's 85 and it's uh, 33 years. Right. And but he he was a It was so different, Richard. I remember Don teaching me things that just wouldn't fly nowadays, but he would say, Ron, don't go down and stand on the bench during the morning practices, and don't go in the dressing room unless you absolutely have to. Keep your distance, and then the players will be excited to see you, Uh, and that will create a a chemistry with them, a, a trust with them that you're not just a hanger on. But I think the dramatic shift in the landscape has been social media, where even the players are almost ready to do the selfie. Uh, so I, I don't think the the rules that Don and I went by back in the mid-80s uh, apply. However, he, w- he was great at teaching me, you know, you may think you know, you, and you hear him say this to the viewer all the time, you know why you don't know? Because you don't know. Uh, but he would teach me the true cutthroat nature of pro sports. Uh, you know, he wasn't gauding up the players the way I would be inclined to as a kid out of Red Deer, Alberta. He He saw, you know, all the the sins of, of professional sport. And he kind of helped me to understand uh, a lot uh, about how players operate, teams operate and how, you know, I should sort of try to fit in. So he was great. He's always been a confidant. He was, uh, I've, I've been let go twice now, once in a contract impasse in 2002 and once in, uh, you know, just a corporate takeover where uh, they were trying to go in a new direction. And Don's always been a, a fantastic ally, a good, you know, ear to lean on and uh, and a dear friend.
1: Can you contemplate a Coach's Corner segment without Don?
0: Well, you know, obviously, no, uh, there will never be another Don Sherry. He's born to it. He uh, His infatuation with the industry not not sports that's the, the craziest thing about don is his true loves are probably hollywood and not the arena uh, so he he fashioned a lot of you know obviously the way he dresses um you know little details like lighting uh, honest to god we can be doing game one of the final and he'll be more intrigued by the stools and how high they are and the lights and how bright they are uh, than seeing the first 10 minutes of the hockey game, and then he'll sort of find his way into the hockey game once he realizes that the television segment's going to look good or sound good. Crazy. And uh, so I, I've never met anybody quite as driven by uh, the traits of an actor uh, in in my experience in the business, so that'll be hard to replicate. After that, you know, I've often sat with, as you have, with a good interview, uh, whether it's Wayne Gretzky or Scotty Bowman or... Uh, Paul Correa was, you know, for, for uh, out of the box thinking. I, I often thought, gee, I wish Paul Correa would take an interest and just sit with me and teach the viewer. Um, so there'll always be the opportunity for someone to come along and be a great instructor and uh, and a great entertainer. But I don't think anybody will have quite the entertainment side that Don had.
1: So this, Ron, this is a very uh, American centric question. I'm, I'm intentionally prefacing this for you. Um, I find sports television in Toronto now that I live here. Uh, far more thoughtful and what is fascinating to me i should just say toronto uh, sort of let's just make it canadian sports television what is fascinating to me is what is considered a controversy here would literally not register in the states for example when don talks about that i think not too long ago i think he called the post-game celebration of the carolina hurricanes he called them a bunch of jerks uh i totally disagree i think it's you know, I think it's, I, I personally find it fun. I think, you know, in that case, I think Don's crazy. But like, literally, Ron, this kind of stuff is like uh, like the 10 to 10-10 block at Fox Sports 1 or ESPN. And, right. and no one would blink. Yet in Canada, that became a very big story. So that's my long sort of filibuster to ask you, as someone who's also spent some time in the States, do you have any sense as to why that is? Is that about Don Cherry? Is that about... Hockey, is that something about the Canadian culture? Why do you think that
0: is? Well, I was saying the specificity of hockey being our our game and our show. You know, that's our Saturday night tradition. And uh, there were traditions like that back in the day with the baseball games on Saturday afternoon and maybe Monday night football. But I think eventually choice um, made it so fragmented that it wasn't as critical. Uh here it still has uh weight. Uh the the broadcast and Don's little moment from the pulpit which is kind of the gospel of the Saturday night church uh it, we all kind of discuss it and think about it and uh, worry about it uh, a little more than we should. Uh but it's good. It's a it's a nice uh, and Don is a he's always imbued his work again with politics. Uh, he steered clear of it more recently, I, I feel, because now with social media, everybody's got an opinion and everybody's got an edge, and maybe that's taken him away from uh, sort of discussing that. But Lord knows, some of our most dramatic segments have dealt with uh, the U.S. decision to go into the Persian Gulf War and Canada's decision to stay out, et cetera. Right. So we've had some blockbuster topics that we've, you know, tackled that are, that, that people will turn to you to see, you know, what is Don thinking and, and with the bunch of jerks, which is fun, and I'm with you. I, I try not to like it because I really believe in humility as a as a guiding principle in sport and ethics and virtue. And sport has to have virtue in order to be good. And I'll tell you, General Walter Natchinchuk is one of our great generals, uh you know, he always said, the farther you get from the guns, the less you understand. And I think that's the that's the one thing that, you know, Don Cherry and Brian Burke and whoever is against it they have been, you know, and never to draw the parallel between military and sport, uh, because I keep making that mistake. But I always say, colonels of truth, colonels of bravery. Uh, you know, some of the seeds of what you, what you need to be a soldier, are in fact uh, accrued through sport. Uh, so Don knows that it's just not a good idea to uh, to rub in your opponent's face uh, your victory, uh, and and. Uh, and I think, you know, we all just sit and wait for, for that pronouncement. And Don is very, you know, it was really funny. We had Mark Milley, who is the chief of staff of the U.S. Uh, Army, on with us during the Washington Stanley Cup run last year. And there was a really fun moment. I don't want to get the general in uh, trouble here, but there was a fun moment when I said, Don really likes your president, Donald Trump. You know, and I could almost see the, the wry uh, sparkle in the eye of the general that he knew Don would love. Donald Trump, of course, uh, and I just, you know, I think that's what people get uh, from Don Cherry and from from you know Bob McCown and you, and is a real sense of uh, of a commitment to something more than just gauding up the players.
1: Yeah, the um, uh, have you by the way, one of the great uh, quotes of all time in relation to militarism and athletics. The Battle of Waterloo was won. On the playing fields of Eden. Right. Yeah, uh,
0: exactly. It's how Pierre de Coubertin created the Olympics. Right. He right. he firmly believed that the uh, the English were soldiering well, and that the French were not. And uh, as you said, that that that's sort of uh, n- not just uh, Eden uh, Brown and uh, you know, but all those uh, school sport landscapes were were kind of the beginning of uh, of how to get it right when you go into a uh, into battle.
1: Have you, because of the Uh, Ron, because of how polarized uh, politics are right now in the United States and because of the relationship between the United States and Canada at times, given the real relationship between Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump has not been great. Have you guys intentionally uh, in Coach's Corner tried to stay away from any kind of political talk because um, we're really in a kind of a new place, at least in uh, politics in uh, North America than we were even three, five, ten years ago?
0: You know, it's a good question for for Don. I, I I know that he and his wife Luba disagree on Trump, so I'm sure Don doesn't want to drag it out onto the television. And you know, so it's funny. You, you're right; it is extremely polarizing right now. And um, and yet again, I I just feel like. Uh, Obviously, social media has contributed to that. Uh, All conversations used to be vertical pronouncements. The New York Times wrote it, and we read it, and we absorbed it, and we thought about it. And that's kind of like a a coach's corner, right? It's still a vertical pronouncement, but it's happening in real-time, horizontally, through social media. Everybody's doing podcasts or uh, real-time blogging. Uh, So the, the... the f- surge in volume of how we think about things is just unreal. And that should be a good thing. It seems for the time being to have been actually divisive, right. but I think in a way, uh, I think in the long run, it's, uh, it's great that we're not stifling dissent. I think the, you know, my, my, my two mentor, well, my main mentor is Lewis H. Lapham. I don't know if you know who he is. The yes. editor of Harper's magazine yeah. for years and he does the Lapham's quarterly and was a good, ran with George Plimpton and sort of has a, a little bit of a connect. Well, his uh, son, uh, is married to uh, a Mulrooney. So uh, oh, wow. Andrew Didn't married. Uh, yeah. So Lewis Lapham, yeah, married Carolyn Mulrooney. So you, we've got we get Lewis up into Toronto. I've never met him. I, you know how they did Tuesdays with Maury, I, I Mitch Album's book. I'd love to do it sometimes sit down with this Lewis Lapham guy that I admire so greatly from a distance. Um, but he's, he's written extensively on, uh, you know, the, the first person is when he, when he would read manuscripts for his magazine, if he didn't see the first person, he threw it out. He loved that you stand by your work and we're all kind of standing by our, our, uh, views right now. And I think that's healthy. I really do in the long run.
1: Your first run on Hockey Night in Canada was 28 years. Uh, then you were gone and now you're back. When you look back on those couple of years, um, what, what? stands what stands out the most when you were you're sort of two years not hosting this 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 very famous program
2: yeah i honestly felt like
0: we had created a new sunday night telecast called rogers hometown right. hockey yeah, and i felt that, it was right. a natural you know move for me to go away from hockey night in canada after 28 years and to try this uh Roadshow, this traveling exchange of stories, where we make the NHL a bit of a first-hand experience in smaller communities around the country. College football, I don't get to see it, but obviously they have kind of a similar template uh, on Saturday mornings in the United States with the how they do the day. college yep. game, right? That's right. Uh, So it was it was our idea to move in that direction. And I thought it was wonderful. And then whack! two years later, we decided that the new Coke isn't working. Let's bring back Coke Classic for the time (laughs) being. And, you know, that's where I am. I'm stuck. I feel feel like uh, we have a guy up in Canada that's probably well known to many Americans on the ecological front, uh, Dr. David Suzuki. And he's been funding shows on CBC for eons, and he keeps saying to me, "I try to leave, but they keep paying me more just to put me as as the front or the brand of of the shows that they want on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation." And you know, luckily, you inherit that you know uh, brand when you when you've been around as long as I have. Uh, it's just a. A comfortable old slipper, and and I, I you know, I, when they made the change, they were thinking in the new world order that there was going to be games on all different channels, and that most of uh, what we were doing was n- no longer going to be destination viewing, but distribution viewing. Just letting the viewer know that you can see your senators over here, Montreal here, Toronto here, you've got choices, and what we talk about is not going to matter. But that's just like back in the 70s when they made a mistake in radio with what was called the Drake format, three record sweeps, and the whole idea was more rock, less talk. But you lost the companionship. And radio started to die a little when they took away the personality or the uh, the DJ. So same in our thing. You know, you, you, you had to be very careful with uh, moving too fast in the direction of nothing but actual rights holder property sport. You need some context. You need some entertainment. And I, I'm not saying that I'm the necessary evil there, but it was uh, at least through the two years of confusion, it seemed like a, a sensible maneuver to revert to having Ron host for a little while and then get get everybody's feet under them with the the Rogers group.
1: Did you Ron did you um was there any maybe hesitation is not the right word but did you ever contemplate not returning to the role or was it always something that um that you wanted to do and then you obviously just figure out contractually to make it work again?
0: No, I, I didn't really want to do it, Richard, except to say that I felt there is a great synergy between Saturday and Sunday. Uh, it's really hard. I travel uh, for viewers uh, or listeners in the United States. We do uh, Saturday night out of the Toronto studios, and then I jump on an airplane Saturday night and fly. You know, Canada's a little big country, so it's a four or five-hour flight to Western Canada to host a Sunday night broadcast in a smaller center. Uh, and it's, it's physically really demanding. But I love the idea that, you know, when you do go into a little town and. British Columbia, Western Canada. You can say, "Hey, that's that's the guy that was with Don Cherry last night in Toronto. How is it possible that he's with us today?" Uh, there's a little excitement to that that I thought, you know, was worth it for for the sake of the Sunday Show, which I really, I'm really devoted to the Sunday Show, even if I'm foolish in my my belief in it. I I really love the idea of of going to where the story, you know, where the roots of the game are.
1: So yeah, let's let's so let's talk about that because I, I I think. What you guys do on Hometown Hockey uh, is fantastic. And I'll be very honest with you. Honestly, I would say this even if I wasn't working for Rogers. I' still at Sports Illustrated. It's just really interesting television. And one of the things I admire about um, what you and Tara Sloan do is you really immerse yourself in the different Canadian towns that you travel to. Swift Current, Saskatoon. A couple of weeks ago, you did the indigenous culture when it came to that relationship with hockey. And so how does this work, Ron, in terms of uh, do producers like sort of choose a different town each week? Do you choose to, like, what is the, what are the logistics of how you ultimately traverse the country and introduce people in different cities to, to the hockey culture in that community?
0: Well, we've just completed our fifth year and now towns are beginning to come to Rogers and to Sportsnet and say, we'd love you to come. It's going to be the 50th anniversary of such and such. And, uh, would you please be in our town? So that's happening a little bit. I, I we played hockey last night. A whole group. Uh, we have a festival that travels with the telecast, and so we're about seventy-five people. A traveling roadshow, and as you say, we immerse in that community for four or five days, and it's lovely. TARS is usually there three or four days, and I'm just sadly, I'm just there the one full day. But it's a great day. Um, and we talked last night at our little year end rap hockey game. Uh, we all got together and played hockey and had a few beers and we started thinking about year six. And one of the key guys, a gentleman named Kevin Angel said, Ron, do you want to get in on the meeting? I said, no, please God, don't let me be attached. It's like when I did horse racing, I don't want to bet because I'll start looking at my horse and I don't want to have a vested interest in the communities and think, well, why are we in Grand Prairie? I wanted Fort McMurray. Uh, so I, I stayed completely out of it. And uh, I'm happy to just you know hear about where we're going when it happens, and there's great mystery to that. I love I love the feeling of uh, excitement that comes with the the day, like the draft lottery uh, tonight for Terrence uh, in the NHL draft lottery. His excitement, mine will be the day they send me the 25 stops for for next year. So Jesus. it it, but it's really been a great uh, really been a great uh, thing to you know. It, it not only is it small town thinking and uh, sort of again the backbone of sport, but Taras. As you mentioned, Tara Sloan, my co-host, is uh, you know she's a woman, so she brings a fantastic point. She's a rock and roller, she's a singer, so artists tend to go right to the heart with their uh, ideals. Uh, It's really been exciting to to do this show, which is so different from the normal, um, you know, a bunch of older white guys sitting around uh, guffawing. So I'm I'm very, I'm very. I hate to be proud, you know. I was saying to you, you know, humility is kind of the key to the deal, but I'm very. Honored about what the show has been able to do.
1: Where, uh, what community have you yet uh, to visit that you really would like to visit in the next two years, and why?
0: Well, we were—I was groundbreaking to go to Enoch Cree Nation, as you mentioned. Our uh, Indigenous hosts in Canada. Canada is a very complicated country. It was born of an agreement between the uh, First Nations, the French, and the English, and we've (laughs) we've struggled to make it, you know, seamless uh, since that agreement or a number of agreements were struck back in the 1800s, but it was really an amazing show. We went to this uh, First Nations uh, Reserve, and we were there, and we did the broadcast as a simulcast in Plains Cree, uh, Indigenous language, so that that was amazing, and so that, that was right at the top of the list of what I wanted to do. Now... You know, the, for us, the north is uh, is intriguing. We have three territories north of our ten provinces, and again, it's this vast, incredible uh, land above the tree line. Uh, so to go into a little place like a Nuvik uh, or Tuktoyaktuk, um, those would be... We did one show last year, Richard, where we had a high wind situation cancel our festival. We, all the tents had to be taken down and all the displays put away because it was just too dangerous in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. We ended up moving our show into a theatre, the Savoy Theater, which is a movie house uh, or a performance house, and that turned out to be a really lovely show. So we, we actually, Tar and I faced the audience instead of with our backs to the audience. And when the joke was funny, the people would laugh and so forth. Uh, I'd love to go into a little remote community in the north, uh, Rankin Inlet, Pond Inlet, you name it, in Canada. Uh, that would be a very special show.
1: There's two more areas I want to hit with you, Ron. Um, again, you're one of the ambassadors for the sport of hockey in canada so you're a good person to ask this question of but i'm a white man asking this question of another white man and that's an important sort of preface to say that where do you see the inclusiveness of hockey heading forward when it comes to a number of things one the women's game and the women's professional game two where people of color stand in this game both on the ice and off the ice and then as well as just the um how the sport sort of uh views um the gay and lesbian community uh slurs that still happen on the ice i'm interested in where i I think the sport has taken great strides at the same time if you're going to be honest about the sport it still needs to take even bigger strides
0: right i I, and that's again what the sunday night telecast has made as our principal ethos is inclusion or inclusiveness uh i think the national hockey league made a you know brilliant move when they hired kim davis to uh to lead sort of their um social growth their uh Diversity, growth, um, she's an amazing woman. Uh, obviously, they have the uh, four women, two from the U.S. and two from the Canadian national teams at All-Star Weekend. This year in San Jose was a, another stroke of genius and stole the show, quite frankly. Um, I mean, you, you, it's, it's all uh, diversity is a given. What you need in this world is pluralism, and that is us working together. And uh, I know some will, you know, I'm a big disciple of Anne Wortham, was at uh, University of Illinois, and kind of against affirmative action, didn't want to be known as a woman or a black woman. uh, And she wrote really eloquently about uh, the subject and victimhood status and uh, things that offended her. But I I think in the end, uh, you know, you can't be what you can't see. We all say that. And you, you do need to to be inclusive in the way you uh, present your telecasts uh, in the way the league thinks about its growth. You know, I, I I know right now we're in a, I think a great moment of opportunity in women's hockey with the CWHL, the Canadian women's hockey league, having folded that has sort of opened the door for the U S version of a pro women's hockey league to move back into Canada, to be one and to have maybe the NHL and other major benefactors get on board and sponsor because, uh, Recently, when I was in Langley, B.C. for hometown hockey, the Vancouver Giants of the Western Hockey League play there, and 53% of their fan base is female. There's no question that it's both economically prudent and it's uh, ethically right uh, to make the game available for for all sexes and for uh, all genders uh, to, to, to to be as colorblind as we can possibly be. Uh, and we're getting there we're, we're we, we by hiring Kim Davis, that's right. By doing what we've done with Willie O'Ree, that's right. Uh, long way to go, but it's, uh, it's nice to see. And as I said to you, what's really exciting is that generation Zers, you know, uh, Clearly feel really strongly about this. I have a friend, a couple couple here in Canada, whose son declared that he was gay, and uh, the mom so graciously said, "Oh gosh, that's okay. We love you. And you, you know, if you want to come out, uh, you know, you come out. We'll support you." Said, "Mom, nobody comes out anymore." And it, it was just a beautiful uh, exchange, right, of, uh, of the new thinking that, that we all wish to sort of showcase and celebrate.
1: All right. The last, I appreciate that answer. The last one for me is, do you, have you come after your 30 plus years of sports broadcasting in Canada? Are there truisms that you have found that are unique to the Canadian sports audience? And if there are, what are they?
0: Well, I, I would say we, we have a lot of the British in us, which was the tall poppy syndrome that you see in the Commonwealth, all those countries where if you get too high on your horse, we'll cut you down to size. I think that's, that's still a part of our makeup. And, you know, I think America, you know, again, how do I know? I've lived in Canada my whole life. But it seemed like Don Cherry's dual life, you know, one as a coach and uh, a player all those years in the United States, uh, he felt that the individual still, uh, you know, whether it's uh, – uh, I, I just think that that's that opportunity to stand out uh, – it's a little better in the U.S. than it is in Canada. That that's a truism. I still believe in that. If you if you are perceived to be cocky, and that's why the bunch of jerks, right? The the Carolina hurricane, Hurricanes, um, the feeling that Don has sort of comes from his uh, his Canadian version of uh, how things should be.
1: Ron McLean is the host of Hockey Night in Canada and Roger's hometown hockey one of the most well-known sports broadcasters in Canada, somebody um, I've greatly admired for a long time. And now it's just, quite frankly, pretty cool that, uh, you know, we're drawing paychecks from the same place. Ron, um, I appreciate the time today. Uh, I imagine our paths will eventually eventually cross at some point, but probably not until the playoffs are over because you will be a busy man. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
0: It was a real pleasure, Richard.
1: All right, as I said at the top, uh, Jason Bonetti has, I think at this point, 17,000 jobs in the business. Uh, among them, obviously, he is the Chicago White Sox lead television voice. He has done Chicago Bulls games. He has worked for ESPN in a variety of sports, baseball, football, basketball, the NFL. I think I was told he also does occasional little cross in college baseball. He can Tell us about all this, and I Westwood One Radio as well. If I have forgotten or if I have omitted any jobs, Jason, please let me know. And Jason Benetti, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast.
2: Uh, flaming hoop jumping—I think once or twice I've done. Uh, no, I, I appreciate that. I, I, uh, I would love to do underwater basket weaving, but I don't think it's available yet.
1: Yeah, but your agent would actually advise you not to do this. Probably not a lot of cash in that at the moment, at least perhaps in the future. Um, all right, so Jason, let's start with this. Um, you you know, your, your, your main job, obviously, is as the uh, play-by-play voice of the White Sox. But you, you know, as I mentioned here, you have all these other jobs. So what 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 is it like to navigate all this stuff for you? How do you how do you schedule it and even maybe even more interestingly how do you sort of how does your brain work in terms of of switching sports oftentimes you know within the same 24 48 hour period
2: yeah it's um it's interesting you know on in AAA, a when i was doing games for the the nationals triple a affiliate in syracuse uh they did like 20 games on tv And mostly radio but I would switch off doing radio and TV and then sometimes within the game I would do both radio and TV and so you kind of have to just remind yourself of the component parts within the two in order to say okay uh, I need to describe a bunch here or I need to pull off on the description but like uh, when I was in college in at Syracuse we did Even uh, there, we did football, basketball, lacrosse. And in the overlap season, we'd have like a football game on a Saturday and a basketball game on a Sunday. And the pregame shows were all named countdown to kickoff, countdown to tipoff, countdown to faceoff. And invariably, like young announcers are all just sped up going fast anyway. So like I saw there, we all in the first basketball game of the year would be like, countdown to kickoff, I mean, tipoff. And then we'd go to lacrosse season and be like, countdown to tip off comes countdown to face off come next. So you just kind of have to be like mentally slow enough in terms of like your heart rate and the speed that you're processing. You just have to remember to just take a moment and think about where you are. But the, the other part of it is like in, in terms of prep, I guess, uh, for a couple years, I was doing basketball at High Point University in the Big South Conference, High Point being the furniture capital of the world. And uh, I was also going to law school at Wake Forest. And part of the way I did that was I would just read ahead. Uh, and And I was never like the really organized kid in elementary school or middle school or high school. And going to Wake Forest while I was doing games and telling myself I am never going to use law school as an excuse and I'm never going to use announcing games as an excuse. When I'm there, you have me. When I am in your classroom, you have me. When I'm at your game, you have me and I'm not doing anything else. And I think for me, doing that taught me to focus on the thing at hand but also get ahead on prep. So like I'm doing baseball stuff sometimes during basketball season when I have an off day, and then when I have an off day at the end of baseball season, I'm doing some football stuff.
1: Do you? Uh, does a law degree come into focus at all on a day-to-day? Do you use that law degree day-to-day?
2: I, I actually kind of do. Not as, not as a, a legal uh, expert in any way, but the one thing it taught me that was really interesting and I never expected, is that your audience is not something you get to pick. And the jury is not something you get to pick either. I mean, you get to strike a couple people uh, in order to to make the jury the best version of it for you through the legal process. But like they taught us in law school, the first 12 people that you see in the mall food court uh, are your jury. So you're going to have to tell them your story regardless of whether or not they're favorable. And for me, like the audience is that there are just going to be some people that don't understand the story, your way, the way, uh, you're telling it and that's okay, but you can't go and tell them like, you need to do better as an audience that doesn't exist. (laughs) Like you, you, you have to package it the way you want them to accept it and whatever they hear, you have to deal with because you changed their day by virtue of what you said, like we, we don't get to affect our audience other than what we say on the air. Like it's not their fault. If they heard something the wrong way,
1: what's it like to call baseball in Chicago? There are certain cities in the States that, um, you know, whether it's New York or, or Boston, San Francisco, you know, obviously a couple others, uh, that just like, it just, they're baseball towns, you know, they just like, you, you just feel baseball. You, you, it's part of your soul. It's part of your blood. And and you have you're in one of those cities calling one of those teams. So as a real just sort of open ended question, what's that like? What's it like being a baseball voice in Chicago?
2: Yeah, I I've been thinking a lot about this actually, because with the Cubs new network and with the Sox moving to NBC Sports Chicago basically full time next year there's a chance that this could be the last year of baseball on WGN for a while. Uh and, and that's still pending. Like they could have a couple games and we're their partner for this year, uh, doing like fifty-five games, but to think that there's a chance after all of those moments and after the Cubs grew on WGN and there were so many Sox moments on GN as well and all of the legendary announcers. I mean, uh, it's uh, got me pretty nostalgic for the way baseball has shaped Chicago. But the other thing that struck me this offseason is when Casper and I and his wife went to uh, dinner at Harry Carey's, and we took a picture of the two of us next to Harry's bust there, and we put it on Twitter, and it just blew up. And I didn't realize, I guess, the magnitude of the two of us standing next to Harry and what it meant for baseball in Chicago. And even as I'm saying this, like to have me mean that to some people in Chicago with how much it cares about baseball and how absolutely insane it would go for another Crosstown series. I mean, the people everywhere wear Cubs or socks. Like it is absolutely to the core a baseball town, and it's it's uh it's neat, but it's also um it's something that hits me pretty deeply having grown up in it as well.
1: Hmm. You um, is it important for you, Jason, to maybe not think is the right word, but uh, clearly. You have a great job as the play-by-play voice of the White Sox, but you also have national aspirations in terms of broadcasting uh, national games to a a national audience. So can you give the listeners a sense of how do you navigate that? Obviously, you navigate it through an agent, as you have, and you try to sort of figure out a career path. But um, have you found it to be difficult to be both a local and a national broadcaster, or maybe – The better question is just how do you navigate that? If you have aspirations to do national stuff, but also want a local base, how do you navigate those two worlds?
2: Yeah, I think what it ends up being is, like I said earlier, you just have to be present when you're doing what you're doing. And you'll hear like every once in a while, the socks will come up in an ESPN show because Dockage will wear his freaking Cubs tie. (laughs) And like, he just does it to troll me. Like the day the day the Padres signed Manny Machado, Dockage and I were in Bloomington and I was looking at Twitter all forlorn and hangdog and whatnot. And it was like an hour before the game and he turned to me, he goes, Are you okay? Like what, what's going on here? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be fine. I just like, I'm dealing with a lot of people getting a sad out here. I just, I need a minute. Uh, but you know, of course he's jabbing me about it. Like Walton in Maui said something about Jerry Reinsdorf. And I said, yeah, he's the chairman of the White Sox. And he goes, which team like the White Sox didn't <laughs> exist. And I said, uh, do, do you understand that like you just, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf, and this is, but you know, by the end of the tournament, he knew my parents' names, but not my name. So there's Bill Walton for you. <laughs> but like it, it's, it's, uh it's being present when you're doing what you're doing and making sure that you give both jobs more than you think, by far more than the average person would give them if it were their only job. Like you just have to give more, I think. And I, I would hope that it makes you better at what you do, but like I, I Eagle has been a friend and, and a guiding light for me for so long. And that was kind of his mantra as well, is that you just, you just have to be there fully and completely when you're doing whatever you're doing. And Another thing that you know he's kind of guided me toward is, is be, be good to people and, and be the person that calls them when something goes wrong rather than your agent, because it's a human connection. So generally, uh, I've found it to be better when I'm just dealing with the scheduling conflicts and get ahead of them too. Like I told ESPN a couple months in advance of college football season what games I might have to miss and ESPN was really good to me last year because we had a Northwestern game on a Saturday when the White Sox had a home game so like I did Northwestern at 11 central and then uh Ubered to the ballpark and off we went you know like the year before I have a buddy who helped me out and and you know we did uh wheels up to go to Tallahassee and then uh came back to do the Sox game and the Sox were good about me showing up in the second inning. Like it, I, it, the part of what has to work is your employers have to be really caring about it and both have, and it's been really fantastic.
1: Jason, one of the things that's always fascinated me about baseball um, and I grew up in New York and now I live in Toronto and those are two different markets when it comes to baseball presentation. And What I'm getting at is this idea of broadcasters who are celebratory of the team, you know, in sort of traditional nomenclature, you'd call them homers. And then there's more of a sort of down-the-middle, objective broadcast. Um, Some in New York have done that. Obviously, New York also has its own homers. Uh, How do you sort of approach this? Because there's a big part of the fan base that wants you to come off like a fan. Calling the game, they want you to be part of White Sox Nation, and you travel with the team. You get to know people, so you have these human connections. And there's probably another group of an audience who really would like you to do more of a national broadcast where we, we can't tell who uh, you're affiliated with. So, how do you weigh those uh, weigh those worlds between um, sort of a homer broadcast and a down the middle broadcast?
2: I, I read um I read a book. This off season for baseball called American Nations, and it was about all of the separate factions who created America and where they came from and how they are kind of warring factions. And it made me realize, without making this a history lesson, it just made me realize that so many personalities go into America and get inflamed different ways, and even within regions, people have different. uh, uh bedrocks that they grew up with and things that they love and things that they hate. And like, you just can't, you honestly truly can't make everybody happy at every moment because there are going to be warring factions in mind, even within your own fan base. Like that's just going to happen. And, you know, following Hawk Harrelson, who is a legend and has been great to me I knew Sox fans were going to be in for something because even as Hawk said, like, you do you, I'll do me. For me, especially having gone to law school, like, I kind of understand both sides of the argument. So when I see an umpire do something with a rule, my tendency is to, like, look at the rule and see if he's applying it properly. And I'm not going to immediately be like, he's jacking us around. Now, that's great for some people, and it's not great for some people. Like, that's, that's why these things are all cyclical, I think. So, you know, I, I just legitimately try to be me to the core. But, you know, when you're doing a home broadcast, sometimes if there was a call that went poorly, like, you do have to react like fans. Like, fans don't want to hear you say, it's going to be okay everybody calm down like (laughs) at some point it's sports people are going to get inflamed the managers out there kicking dirt like there has to be some emotion there too and i think that comes out of me when somebody gets a rule wrong when somebody makes a play that even they would be frustrated that they didn't make like that it's gonna happen like i i i am gonna get mad at points but uh I also think people want, for 162 games, somebody to reasonably guide them through telecasts and have an adventure with them. I, I, I do wonder a lot, if Vince Scully were 25 today, what would his path have been? Would he have been in the minor league doing game notes and standing by a copier and using Photoshop and building all this stuff? And then getting to the major leagues if he was as soft spoken and uh eloquent as he was, would people say he's too soft i it's It's really fascinating to think about the legends growing up in the time of twitter and i I do often wonder what they would have gotten as a first blush reaction
1: yeah it's a good it's a it's a it's a good question um one of the broadcast that you did last year that got a lot of notice was the Statcast broadcast where you did a alternate broadcast on ESPN two um with the main broadcast on ESPN and your broadcast was very um analytics uh bent or analytics focused and I know that advanced stats are something that you're into and that you use. Um one um did you enjoy that broadcast and sort of the different presentation of it? And two, um, what I'm hearing is that there's a, there's a likelihood that this is going to come back as well. Is that the case?
2: Yeah, two first. Uh, that's what I'm hearing is that they're leaning toward doing some more of this this year. Uh, nothing official yet, but uh, if I had to wager, I would say it's going to happen in some uh, slightly larger fashion, but I'd, I don't know officially, officially yet. But those are the rumblings. Um, the, uh, did I enjoy it, uh, is way too low a bar. <laughs> it was one of those games. We finished the game. It was like a 14 inning game and you know, it was a good show when it felt like it was three hours and the total running time was five and a half. I had that happen, uh, doing a Cubs Sox game with Dave Ross and, uh, David Ross and, and Rick Sutcliffe. And it was, it was like a really long nine inning game and it, it was actually, uh, felt like two and a half hours, but the the statcast show, like at the end of it, i I didn't go to sleep until about four thirty the next morning because I was just so pumped to be around people who were so creative and I know it sounds like I'm saying like, oh, our team was great, like thanks to everybody in our offense and defense, and we all played well. I'm telling you, Richard, like our producer, uh, Andy Jacobson, every everybody in the truck. Mike Petriello, Eduardo Perez, it was one of those games where literally everybody made everyone else better. And it was like the the preparation, we couldn't do much prep because the day before we still didn't know who was going to be in the game because the Cubs and Brewers had to play 163 and so did the Rockies and Dodgers out in L.A. So we were like sitting in a hotel room in Chicago going through possible players and talking to Petriello about possible angles for the show when we didn't even know who the teams were. So like, but, but the, the point being we sat down for that show and did it something that, that hadn't been done. And at the end of it, we all just kind of, it was like one big hug because we all enjoy the game so much. And I think we kind of felt it in our cores without being self-aggrandizing that we had just like slightly inched baseball forward by literally two things like enjoying baseball. Cause we had a bunch of laughs and we like the game. And number two, just by putting numbers on the screen that were more relevant to the stories that could be told, like it, it I laugh when people say, well, there are are too many stats when you do advanced stats. We put home runs and RBIs on every batter's graphic when they come up to the plate. (laughs) What if we just had more relevant stats? And I think that's what we did. Like, we just didn't put stuff on the screen, uh, for the most part, if it wasn't relevant to the batter and the core of what they do as a player or defensively or whatever. But, yeah, yeah. Enjoy is is uh, too short of, of what the, it was. It was we were ecstatic afterwards simply because of like the the creative undertaking of being around people who legitimately made each one of us better. They all made me better. I hope that I had the same effect on them. But like I, I could just relax because everybody was so good at what they did that that it was uh, it was thankfully a success.
1: All right, a couple more here. Um, you have cerebral palsy, correct? I do. Okay. How important is it um, how important is it what you are doing regarding eradicating stereotypes about disabilities, disability awareness? One of the things that you've done that I really respect is um, you know you've gone to a lot of schools and you've talked to a lot of kids to sort of... Uh, let them know uh, who you who you are and and what you are doing. And in terms of disability awareness, that's I mean that's vital. It's vital for people to sort of see that um, that uh, you know careers can be forged regardless of 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 what you might have been born with. So I wonder, just obviously, it's a part of you. It doesn't necessarily define you, but um, you've been very public with this, Jason. And I wonder sort of just your thought process on that as it relates to your career, as it relates to baseball, and perhaps, and which seems very important to you, how it relates to young people who, who also might have CP.
2: Yeah, I uh, I kind of had to be public about it because I can't look directly at the camera. <laughs> like, I I get if I'm doing a game that a lot of people are watching, I'll get one or two tweets of like, what happened to your eyes? Your eyes are crazy. Or like some, you know, gif of people... Uh, with wild eyes or something like that. Like it's just, it's going to happen. But for me, like, I, I just don't want anybody to think that because of the first thing people see about them, that there's a problem for them to do anything. I mean, some people who have CP, it's, it's tough for me to be a complete, um, Hey, everybody go get them. And like, Go do whatever you want, because if you use assistive technology to speak like some people with CP do, it would be more difficult to be a sports announcer like I am. And it'd be more difficult for me to, you know, like be a a superb javelin thrower. But uh, it's also like, hey, you have something that people are going to look at and people are going to think things about you. Being angry about it or being defensive, where I've been, like, I I have done that. Like, people have said things to me and I yell or I, you know, when I was first traveling through airports, people would offer me a cart ride and I'd get really angry about it and say something snippy to them. Like, when you're in TV especially, people are going to lock in on the thing that's different. And frankly, like... (laughs) that it's just going to happen. It's a fact of life. And why it's important to me is I I just don't want anybody to, to think things that they don't have to think. Like I have a brain, people with CP have brains. They're able to do a lot of things. And, you know, like in a, in, in an industry, like like one of the seminal moments of TV to start was the debate between Kennedy and Nixon. And a lot of people say, and rightfully so, Kennedy won the election because he was so buttoned up and so ready to go. And Nixon was sweating and looked panicked and all of that. Like you're going to get perceived on television and you're going to get perceived in life. It's how you react. And the the second impression you make when your mouth opens and how you think that's, gonna be the the long-term uh driver of success i think but you know i i i read a i read a biography of uh the game show host bill cullen do you remember bill cullen of course did, like, yeah joke, the original joke, prices right joke yeah. joker's wild yeah i joker's think wild, maybe uh, yeah 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 blockbusters among others more recently but bill cullen had polio And I thought it was really interesting that the bonus rounds of his game shows, the contestants came to him, if you watch, because Bill walked with a limp. And at that point, that wasn't even his call. The director of the show said, you know what, Bill, we're just going to do it this way. And that helped him feel more at ease. And I kind of want people to feel at ease with whatever they've got. Uh, So that's, I, I think that if there's any crusade here, it's just in perception and judgment. It's like, uh, dear Evan Hansen, the musical. Like you are, you are not alone.
1: I appreciate that answer. By the way, now you have me down the rabbit hole of Bill Cullen's career. I've got a secret nice. name that tune. Password plus. This guy actually, he he has a crazy like background in terms of all the uh, all the television game shows he hosts, including twenty five thousand dollar pyramid. And something called Hot awesome. Potato. Yeah, wow. Like, Hot Potato a,
2: was a great show. You got to go on YouTube and watch Hot Potato. It was actually a really good concept that just never took off. They would have teams of people and it'd be lists like uh, kind of the bonus round that they used to do on Sports Geniuses with Wes Gershon. <laughs> it, it's a good show. Good premise.
1: Yeah, he, this guy's the GN Carlos Stanton of game shows. That's what I'm going to describe.
2: <laughs> um, all right.
1: The uh, as we finish up here, I do want to ask you about the White Sox. There are going to be people, obviously, listening to this podcast who are fans of yours and um, who are probably in tune, in turn, White Sox fans. Where are for 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 those outside of Chicago listening to this? Where are the White Sox now in terms of the rebuild? They obviously have some really really good young players. Uh, maybe they're still a couple years away, but uh, you're with these guys every day. You know what where do they stand now, and what does the future look like and At least from my vantage point, the future looks pretty good,
2: yeah, it does. I mean, the first couple of days of this season, we saw Joan Boncada, who struck out more times than anybody in the big leagues, like the first two days of the year he didn't strike out, and that might seem like a baby step, and it is, but he's been attacking more, and Lucas Giolito in his first start of the year had a shorter arm arc than he did the year before. We did a, a side-by-side on our telecast, and he had great results in that first start. And Eloy Jimenez, one of the top prospects in baseball, is here. There's a lot to believe in in terms of not only new talent, but progress with the old-ish talent, guys that you know who are still in their 20s and still are like almost prospects. But there's, there's already been progress very early in this season, so I'm pretty optimistic. Uh, And and I feel like the rebuild's going as planned other than a couple injuries. Like Michael Kopech, who showed up uh, in September last year, is one of those kids that you get him in the clubhouse and he just kind of wills people to win a little bit more. He he just wants to win more than the even above average person. And he ends up with Tommy John surgery. And you're like, oh, man, that, that sucks. And there are a couple other guys who've gotten hurt. But when they come back and this full complement is here, and I think that's, that window is open in 2020, I think it's going to be a scary team. And by the way, I found out, uh, we were talking about that Northwestern game. I, I was coming back from coaches' meetings uh, at Northwestern the day before that game. I was sitting in the backseat. Kelly Stoffer was driving. Olivia Decker was in the passenger seat. I looked at my phone, and I got a text from Len Casper, Cubs announcer, that was like, so sorry about Kopech. And then I opened Twitter because I was just talking to them in the car. I opened Twitter and I was just like, I I said a word that I probably shouldn't say (laughs) on your podcast. Kids listen to it. Uh, But Len broke the news to me of Kopech getting hurt. And I was like, dude, can you, can you not be the one to do that? Like, I love you, but can, can you just make sure somebody else did it first?
1: Uh the you know living here in Toronto obviously we've had so much hype about Vladimir Guerrero Jr uh who should yeah. be arriving in a couple of weeks but Jimenez is basically you know whether it's Tatis or Guerrero or him they they're always sort of mentioned as the uh you know the top 3 prospects in baseball i really haven't seen much of him but what what from your eye test what's the ceiling for this guy what 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 does he project to in your opinion
2: it kind of looks like an easter island statue uh the first He's a Spanish speaking guy uh, at heart. And the first time we ever met him after he was traded over from the Cubs, he did a booth interview with me and Steve Stone at home. And he had the option of bringing a translator and he said no. And I'm not saying that that's worthy of some chivalry award or something like that. But he is such a smart guy. He's somebody who wants to get better at literally everything at every moment. Like, he bleeds star to me. He feels like a star. He seems like he's gonna be a star. Like he said he wants to be the rookie of the year this year. That's what he's aiming for. Not just like settle into the big leagues, get used to that. Not that he's not one of those people where the process takes longer than it needs to take. And so I, I think uh I think he's gonna be a star. I mean he this is he kept his first hit, the ball from his first hit, as so many people do. But he also kept the ball from day one when he got hit in the foot with the bases loaded. It drove in a run. And he also kept the ball from his first strikeout because he wanted to remember that, too. Now, I don't know if he's just a hoarder, uh, but keeping all three of those is uh, rather new to me, especially the first strikeout. Like he, <laughs> He's a very thoughtful guy. I, I I think he's going to be a star. I really do.
1: It's good investment, by the way. Any memorabilia twenty years from now, if this guy becomes a star, is going to be worth a lot of money. So
2: yeah, I admire that's the... what I'm saying. Can Keeps... you explain to me, by the way, why OK Blue Jays? Let's play ball instead of taking me out to the ball game.
1: Nah, there's some things I can't explain. Uh, but you know, I'm an American uh, <laughs> interloper here in Toronto. So, uh, all right, finally, Jason. Two things. I, I know I'm supposed to ask you about the. Uh, um, I've been told to ask you about your Sean McDonough uh, impression, but we'll save that for the end. The um, sure. you know your is in terms of the national work is there something that has always been an aspiration for you or a dream? You know, some people obviously their dream is to call the NFL. So I'm sure I and Eagles' dream was to be a NBA announcer for uh, on a national level. Is there something sort of pie in the sky that you would? You, you you really would love to call or or a, or a package that you would love to host?
2: Yeah, I mean, I got to do the NCAA basketball tournament on radio for a couple years when it didn't overlap too much with spring training. I think if there was one thing, it would be the tournament on TV. I, I, I was the kid who missed Thursday and Friday of school because I had <laughs> just gotten a, a cough. Uh, and my parents were like, okay, you can just stop faking it. You need to stay home from school. Like, it's fine. Uh, so I, I think it'd be the NCAA tournament on on TV.
1: I like that. Uh, all right, and so am I correct? Do you have a you have a Sean McDonough impression that you're you're proud of?
2: I don't know. It's delighted to have you. Uh, so here's the thing about Sean: he didn't know that I did the impersonation for a long while, and a stat guy, actually uh, Ed Spita who does Joe Buck's stats on Sundays, came to me at one point, and he goes, hey, uh, did you know Sean didn't know you did that impersonation? I was like, did you – you told him? He's like, yeah, I didn't know. So every once in a while, I will just walk over to a table and say, hello, how are you? With Jay Billis, (laughs) Bill Raftery from the XL Center, the two XL egos here on Big Monday.
1: That is very very good, and in particular, it's really good because there are probably not a lot of people who do Sean McDonough. Uh, well, it's so you,
2: like it's you, like the most useless uh, impersonation, especially if he hates it. But he's been okay with it. Uh, but it's a, it it's mostly the ends of words, like anything that ends in O, ends up being just a little longer, and <laughs> it gets fun. He he, I I will say, uh, I was at an event a Syracuse event, uh, for Sean. And he came up to me at the dinner afterward and he said, will you do the impersonation for us? And I said, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to. And he turns to everybody around and he goes, he always botches it when he's around me, which isn't true at all. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I do it. And then he goes, that's wonderful. When does the impersonation start? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think what I if if I had that talent, what I would do is I would find where Joe Testator is, and I'd go behind him and screw with him and say, you know, Joe, I'm back in the booth. Have a good life.
2: Uh, oh, I don't know if that's welcome, Richard. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that is good. Wow, I'm gonna have that McDonough uh, impression now in my head for a while. All right, Jason Benetti. Let us take 15 minutes to give all his jobs. He is the uh, television voice of the Chicago White Sox. He works for ESPN in various capacities, including doing baseball, college football, college basketball, has done NFL for ESPN Radio, some lacrosse, college baseball as well, has an experience working for West 1-1 Radio, select college hoops games, and has done a couple of Chicago Bulls games as well on television, and as he noted on this podcast, and I, as I sort of, I think, can confirm from my own sources, the likelihood is the StatCast broadcast, will be back, which I think is excellent. Any uh, any broadcast that gives uh, you, the viewer, more options in terms of how to enjoy a particular game is great. Listen, Jason, very good of you to take the time this morning to talk to me, and, uh, and I wish you nothing but the best of success as you head forward. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Richard. All right, my thanks to Ron McLean and to Jason Benetti for two really good conversations. If you enjoy this content the sports media podcast and please enjoy it so we can continue. Lord knows Cadence 13 is carrying me at this point. Renee Young and Paul Heyman of WWE fame were the previous podcast. Conrad Thompson, Shereen Ahmad and we did a whole long podcast on the sort of business of podcasting. Emily Kaplan, Greg Washinsky, Stephen Bennett four podcasters at different levels of podcasting in terms of metrics and how they do what they do and why. For that, Michael K. NFL Network Analyst, Daniel Jeremiah, and then our usual roundtables with the likes of John O'Ran, Chad Finn, Jim Miller, etc. Just head over to Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher or uh, Radio.com and you can check out all the previous podcasts we've done. And please, if you like this stuff, uh, give us a good review and, and leave a comment. That's pretty much how this stuff continues. All right, for Ron McLean, for Jason Benetti, for Terrence Malagone, for Cadence 13, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.